Um, again, my name is John Turnipseed. It is Dutch. And I'm sure my fellow Dutchmen recognized it when they seen me. But anyways, I come from uh, Selma, Alabama. They say the Bible Belt is somewhere around here or through Missouri or something. No, it's in Selma, Alabama. The belt and the suspenders. So I did not know that people didn't go to church seven days a week. It was unheard of. What do you mean you're not going to church? And it was the happiest place that I could have been in in my young, young days. I didn't know we were poor because we had sugar cane, we had watermelon, we had pecan trees, you know, we had pork chops and gravy for breakfast. I, I just thought we were rich. I only had one pair of shoes. You know, I ran barefoot most of the time. My father sang in the church choir. My mother was a, a mother, one of the leaders of the women's group in the church. And they practiced at our house, and I loved the Lord. I could recite all the books of the Bible by the time I was seven. What? Oh, man, this is just great. Well, around 1960, I'm, about, I'm almost 68 years old, so around 1960, Martin Luther King came down to Selma, 1959-60, and it became a very ugly place to be. The civil rights movement was not a very uh, warm thing. It was ugly. And my father decided to leave the South to come to the North. So he came up here, and we followed him. And um, we followed him about a year later. You know. Now, remember down South, you know, I could pray for anything. If I prayed, if Big Mama, Big Mama was not a negative term in our culture. That means, you know, the head matriarch mother. Big Mama would, make, you know, I would pray with her. And if I wanted biscuits and gravy for, for breakfast, I'd say, oh, Lord, can I have some biscuits and gravy in the morning? And that would arrive. And one time I even prayed, oh, Lord, don't let Papa whoop me when he comes home. And Big Mama stopped him. So I, man, I, you know, prayer was everything. And I had everything I needed. I was loved. We had all, everybody was married. Um, there was no alcohol. Nobody smoked. Uh, we lived in a place called the bottom. Well, anyways, transitioning up here, um, when we got here, my father was an alcoholic. I didn't, I didn't even know what alcohol was. He was dressing different, he talked different, and he was violent. He didn't have the support of the church anymore because down south, you call the preacher if, if anybody's acting up and the preacher come in, you better straighten up because he was bigger than the president. But up north here, um, we didn't have that church support and we were a family alone, me and my five brothers. So we started praying like I was taught to do. And that didn't work. God just, you know, get my dad back the way he was supposed to be. Didn't work. Okay. Well, God, um, make him go back down south. Didn't work. Well, God, can you have somebody hurt him so he can't hurt my mother anymore? Didn't work. So then we stopped praying. And that's when I walked away from the church and God, um, my mother was beaten, she was an abused woman, and had no support up here, so she didn't go to church, and I definitely didn't go. By the time I was 13, um, I was a kid of the streets. I had my first armed robbery. 
By the time I was 16, uh, I had a child had been shot and stabbed and had shot somebody else and been in reform school, they used to call it, two or three times. Angry, didn't care nothing about nobody, and especially don't say this Jesus thing because that's just like Santa Claus. Y'all tricked us when we were kids, making us think that there's a, we didn't even have a chimney. And there's a guy supposed to come down the chimney and, and give us president. That was Big Mama. So there is no God. And I taught my little brothers that, man, don't ever fall for that. By the time I was 16, like I said, I was, I had my first child and, uh, and a, an assassin came into my house and shot me, my child, and um, my girlfriend, and we all lived. So, you know, but that didn't stop me from doing anything. Uh, went to prison at 18 for armed robbery, I believe it was. I have 10 felonies. You know, it didn't matter to me. I was gonna be in jail or dead for the rest of my life because I had fell into that world of being a gangster as I thought I was. Um, my family started migrating up here. And by the time my family started, my, we're boy heavy. What that means is some families we have 14, 15 kids in. Because in Alabama, we have kids. And you don't, you don't do abortion, no, uh-uh. You, you don't want the baby, give it to big mama. That's, that's the way the family worked. And we stuck together. We were very close knit. So they started coming up and my mother had 13 siblings and my father had 16. So a lot of them, most of them, almost every one of them moved up here. And a lot of them had boys, so a lot of the boys gravitated to me because I, I had an apartment, I'm 17 years old, with an apartment and a brand new car. So they gravitated to me and I turned them away from church because I was so angry at this so-called God thing. Well. Because of that and uh, the migration and the men in the family migrated to my dad because he had a fancy car and you know had this good job, uh, metal coating and stuff and it left his family and all of them left their kids, put them on welfare. It was like a second income. So now we're on welfare and the kids come up and I teach them how to get off welfare. You know, and that, that group of unfathered, unloved kids. There was a bunch of us, a bunch. When I say a bunch, let's say 500, right in South Minneapolis. That group of kids, led by me, formed the largest gang ever in the state of Minnesota, all blood relatives. They called us the Rolling 30s Bloods, and we terrorized Minnesota for years. They even called in the National Guard to stop us. Um, and one year they called us Murderapolis. I don't know if you, some of you won't remember that, but you can look that up. I'm not proud of that. I'm just telling you what evolved with this group of unfathered, unloved, unchurched kids, you know, the damage that could happen. So anyways, I was in and out of prison, um, just in and out, didn't matter. You know, most people knew that I was, you know, I dealt drugs, I did everything. And um, in my neighborhood, South Minneapolis was all black, except one white guy. One white guy, and he was a youth pastor. 
And you know about youth pastors. Don't look them in the eye. <laughs> but for some reason, I had, was taught to respect pastors. So even on our drug corners, he could come up there and he would talk to us. He'd always try to talk to me. He said, Johnny, if you change, every one of them will change. And I would never say anything to him. Most people, my nickname was Taz for Tasmanian Devil. Um, most people wouldn't talk to me like that. Most people wouldn't talk to me unless they knew me really well. And uh, I was on, I had my, we had, we had an eight by eight block radius that we patrolled and kept and uh, sold a lot of drugs. Um, so anyways, this guy, he, he would always come around, always. You know, he lived in the neighborhood. You know, you could see him coming a mile away and stuff. So anyways, um, I just ignored him. And one day, even when I went to prison, I went to school. And I became really good in computer programming. So 30 years ago, I became a computer programmer in and out of prison. And I needed a job. And um, they hired me at Minneapolis Community and Technical College to be a teacher because I knew the language so well, you know. Back then, if you really knew the language, other programmers would talk, hey, you know, John's coding is great. And so um, I became a teacher. They didn't even do a background check back then. <laughs> you know. So anyways, I become this teacher, and I'm still in my same neighborhood. A teacher by day, gangster stuff at night. And I organized a theft ring Matter of fact, Egan Police Department was one of the police departments that put, they put together a task force of eight police departments to catch us because they knew they couldn't, they knew I was the leader, but they couldn't, they wanted me. They didn't want anyone else, they just wanted me. But you know, I thought I was a little clever, but I'm not that clever. I, you get, you know, you're not clever if you got 10 felonies, trust me. You know, it's like a boxer getting knocked out 10 times. Anyways, so they formed a task force and they caught me. And I was tired. I'd been in prison three times, already had eight felonies, headed to, you know. And this one guy, this one detective, and he was a Christian guy, he said, Johnny, ain't you tired? And I said, yeah, I'm tired, man. He said, well, what do you want to do here? And I said, well, you know, I'm a teacher at this school. And if you would just let me finish this class, because I had them five days a week, disabled students. I, he said, well, we'll just get another teacher. I said, what teacher would change a catheter? What teacher would, you know, I make, I, I readjust equipment and all that. I got a blind student. He said, oh, okay, well, what do you want? I said, I'll plead guilty to 50 felonies if you let me finish this class, and I'll go to jail for as long as you want me to. I won't even put up a defense. And he thought I was joking until I wrote down on paper about five of them that had happened right in his jurisdiction. And he said, you're serious, ain't you? So he went to bat for me, otherwise I couldn't have got out on bail because they had charged me, it's like 190 felonies. And uh, even they were looking at um, federally charging me because a lot of the stuff they thought went overseas. So anyways, I'm, I'm done, I'm just done, I'm tired. 
you know, and I'm going away for the rest of my life. I'm 40 years old. So I went back and I started teaching the class. And I'm teaching the class, and one day I had a student, this student named Mary Ann. She's about this tall. She actually had five personalities. I never thought that was possible. But I could talk, to, all of them liked me. You know, I, I had the conversations with them, you know. Even the doctor, you know, when she was having a meltdown, I would talk to the doctor in her and stuff. And the doctor would calm her down and talk to her and she'd be okay. So anyway, she loved me. Every day she brought me a treat or something and I was Mr. Turnipseed, the greatest guy in the world. She didn't know I was a liar and a thief. So one day, she runs up to my office and said, Mr. Turnipseed, what, Mary Ann? Are you teacher of the year? I said, no, I don't think so. She said, well, the newspaper is outside. They want to talk to you. I said, oh, okay. I knew it wasn't nothing good. She ran back downstairs, and she came back up, and she said, Mr. Turnipseed, make them stop. And I said, stop what, Marianne? They're calling you a liar and a thief and a gangster. They say you sold drugs to kids, that you're not a nice person. I want you to go make them stop. And she was crying uncontrollably. That moment broke me. I, you know, I didn't have a conscience, but for some reason, that child broke me. I mean, I, when I was in prison, my three-year-old son got beat to death. And then that didn't break me. But that there broke me. And I went and closed myself up in a room. My office barricaded the door because I wanted to kill myself. I, didn't, I had a pistol at home, but I didn't have it at work because of respect for my students. And I didn't know what to do. So I just, I was lying on the floor crying because of Marianne, not because of me. I didn't care nothing about me. And I just remember what Big Mama said. Boy, just give it to Jesus. And I talked to him like I'm talking to you. I said, Jesus, if you're for real, you have to come right now. I'm not, tomorrow, I won't even be alive. If you're real, you have to come right now. And I can't tell you, he didn't say anything. But all of a sudden, I felt like I was being hugged by 50 big mamas. I felt the comfort of the Lord in a way that I have never felt. I didn't seem possible. And all of a sudden, I got this happiness and glow about me. And I got up and I went, opened the door and told everybody it's gonna be all right. My suit was dirty, I always wore suits, even in my criminal days. My suit was dirty, everything was dirty, but I had been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I didn't care about prison anymore. And all I asked him, I said, God, would you please let me teach again wherever I'm at? And God, would you please have my children forgive me? Well, that was, let me see, I was 40 years old. That was 28 years ago. And I've been teaching every day. I have, my kids love me. And they forgave me. So he gave me exactly what I asked for. And then he gave me more. He's got me. I've been in Cuba and Africa teaching. I, you, know, I, you know, people hear about my ministry or what we're doing. 
And all of a sudden, I'm all over the world and stuff. I have um, curriculum, prison curriculum. But anyways, that's enough about me. But I want to tell you something that happened on the way to sentencing, which I know it was God's hand. You see that pesky white guy, Art Erickson's his name, good old Scandinavian. Um, for some reason, he just loved me. And for since I was 15 to the time I was 40, he always would try to talk to me. So now I'm 40, I'm in trouble. I'm on the channel on the 9 o'clock news, so he knows I'm in trouble. I go to court, and there he is. See, he knew the judge and everybody. He knew the sheriff and the prosecutor, and he's speaking up on my behalf, but they're saying, no, we offered him 40 years, and uh, we think that's a fair deal. And he was arguing, no, no, I got a fathering center I'm starting, and he should be the leader. I had never been a father in my life. But anyways, I went um, to, I, when I was saved, I didn't tell nobody. You know, because everybody, when you get in trouble, gets saved. You know that. Everybody, you know, Lord is the greatest thing in the world. You start carrying a Bible and wearing a cross so the judge can see. But I didn't do that because it was a personal thing. You know, it was, I, I got saved with integrity. I didn't have to try to tell everybody I was saved. They start seeing that I was a different person. I didn't buy, I didn't do drugs anymore. I didn't go to bars anymore. I didn't carry guns anymore. I denounced my gang. I quit. Everybody thought I was crazy or scared or something. But I knew it was, it was the Lord. My God commanded me to do those things. So anyways, I go to church and I went to the suburbs called Speak the Word. Because I didn't want people in the inner city seeing me looking like I'm trying to get out of prison. Okay? So I got 40 years hanging over me. 60, I'm going to do 40. I'll be 80 when I get out if I make it and stuff. Well, I had a Christian lawyer. And he, he would always pray. He said, Johnny, we're, we're, you, you shouldn't go away for 40 years. And he whittled it down to 10. That's a good deal. I get 15 years, I do 10, bet, I'll take that, 50 years old, I'll be okay. And so on the day of my sentencing, there was a blizzard, you know, a real Minnesota blizzard. And it came down, woo, man, people were snowed in, but nothing, everything was closed but the police department and the court. For somehow, they stayed open. So I had to go to court that morning. And the judge was snowed in, and he had to wait and get plowed out. My lawyer was snowed in, but I got there. I was on time. And um, I'm looking to see this one prosecutor who hated my guts, hated me. He had been prosecuting me for 20 years. And um, he, he really didn't want to just give me 10 years. So anyways, I'm sitting on a bench outside the court. And this guy, this Latino guy comes up, and he's sitting there, I'm thinking he's just, he's a lawyer. And we start talking, and we start talking about everything. I read a lot, so we start talking about world affairs, and uh, we start talking about the Vikings who had just lost again and stuff. And, but we loved them, and we start talking about our kids, you know. And we were there for an hour and a half, just me and him. And then we start talking about God. 
And the church he went to would speak the word. So we started talking about camp meeting. And the last sermon that I had heard was, he said, God is your judge, but Jesus is your defense attorney. That was the sermon the Sunday before I went to get sentenced. So the guy kept talking to me and talking to me, and I had a suit on, white shirt, just like I'm dressed now. And um, he said, um, well, oh, the judge is here. Oh, your lawyer is here. I mean, the judge is here, and I'm getting ready to go. He said, are you the lawyer for John Turnipseed? And I said, uh, no, I'm actually John Turnipseed. He said, um, you're supposed to be a fire-breathing dragon. You're supposed to be the most despicable man I've ever would come across. You see, the prosecutor that was going to prosecute you couldn't get out, couldn't plow itself out, so he told me to pick up the case. He said, but what I've read about you, that's not what I feel about you. You're a teacher. You know, I told him about, you know, the kids that I teach, and, and he said, we can't send you away. We cannot send you away. And he left. So then my lawyer gets there, and everybody gets in the courtroom, and I'm supposed to get 10 years, and he comes back in, and he said, Your Honor, we'd like to rescind the um, plea agreement that we gave to John Turnipseed. And my lawyer said, objection. I said, chill out. Because <laughs> I knew there's something. And the prosecutor said, um, our community would not be served sending this man to jail. He should be um, sentenced to teaching for the rest of his life. He should go back and help those kids that he's been helping. He's got 50 of them well-paying jobs already. His school is fantastic. He said, I went and looked it up. It's a great. And he said, the prosecution would like not to send this man to jail. And my lawyer said, okay. And I said, hallelujah, praise God. And I walked out of court that day. Now, you can call it what you want, but I know my father was looking out for me. He had a mission for me. He had something he wanted me to do. And because I gave my life to him. See, you can't fake with God. You can't, you know, you put your fingers behind your back and double cross your fingers. You can't do that with God. You know, I talk directly to him. I don't need no middleman. I talk, to, you know, well, there's the Trinity. I talk to the Holy Spirit sometimes. I talk to Jesus sometimes. I talk to God sometimes. And uh, it always works out for me. I've had two heart attacks, two strokes, and my doctor says I'm a miracle because I have no symptoms, except I get sometimes tired and stuff. And it's, it's just been a miracle life. Now, let's get back to Urban Ventures. So I was sentenced to Urban Ventures. Actually, the judge said, well, I want you to take parenting classes. You've been an awful parent. And I didn't know why at the time, because, you know, I, Nobody thinks they're an awful parent. So the first thing I learned about Urban Ventures is the, the last thing that was said in the Old Testament. Okay, 80% of the kids in my neighborhood have, don't have a father in the house, 80%. So there's a verse, you know, say your mother's going to leave home, and she says, okay, take off the garbage and mop the floor, and don't let no one in this house. The most important thing, you could, the other two you can get away with. But if you let somebody in that house, the last thing she said 
would be the most important. So check this out. God never lies, and he meant what he said. So in the last chapter, last verse, verse 5, I think it is, this is what he said, and he wasn't joking. You see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, else I will curse the land. Now, it's in, it's in the Bible, and he never joked. God ain't never said nothing that he didn't mean. Else I would curse the land. Well, the curse is here. Kids, kids are growing up without a dad. Kids are going into school shooting other kids. Kids are killing their parents. Fathers are just neglecting their kids. And the curse is here. But lucky for us, anyone that loves God, God can lift the curse. But that was, is what was happening in our neighborhood. So me and that preacher guy started, he had started Urban Ventures. He had one building. And he told me he wanted me to help him fundraise. So I started helping him fundraise. And um, to this day, we've raised um, $60 million easily. And it all went back into our community. We built a high school. We built two soccer fields. We got a farm. We send 50 kids a year off to college on a full-need, full-ride scholarship from the inner city. We guarantee any kid in the neighborhood. See, he lived in the same gang territory that I once ran. So any kid in that gang territory is guaranteed college if they complete high school. We started in the early learning center because our kids were not ready. They were not ready for kindergarten. And if a kid is not ready for kindergarten, you've lost them right there. Right there, you know, by the time. They, then they, they say, well, third grade, he can't read. Well, he couldn't read in kindergarten because he couldn't learn. The other kids were ahead of him. And you know a kid, if they can't participate, you'd be playing dominoes. And a baby walks up, three-year-old walks up, and they want to play dominoes. And you tell them, oh, you know, no, get away. Well, they disrupt the game. That's what they do in school. They become disruptive. Then we put them on drugs. Then we, you know, put them in a special class and just slow down the teaching so that they'll be slowed down for the rest of their life. And they don't graduate. Well, we decided we're, we're not going to let that happen to the kids. So we started six weeks old. We started working with kids at six weeks old. And uh, we call it cradle to college. That's where we're going. And a lot of our kids are doing fantastic things in the world. Right now, we got about 250 kids in college right now. Right now. So anyway, um, that was why um, Art had me start the fathering center. We wanted to teach men how to be fathers. Because once my heart was touched by Jesus, the father in me came out. Because every kid without a father has a hole in their heart the size of a father. And that's the problem. And we need mentors, you know. And a lot of people think, uh, well, you know, I'm white, he's black, or I'm white, he's Latino, or I'm black and they're white, that we can't, I, I don't know his world. Love is all that's needed. See, I've never had a black mentor in my life to this day. I've had three white mentors that helped me. One talked me into going to high school, finishing, get my GED. One talked me into going to college in prison 
And one saved my life, took me in. I lived with him for two years, even though I didn't need a place to stay. So it ain't about, you know, I needed to learn what people that never went to jail learned. I needed to learn how to build a family. I needed to learn he helped me buy my first house. Not giving me money, just advice. So that, you know, like I said, 27 years ago, he took me under his wing. That's what Urban Ventures is about. See, because it says um, in Mark 10, for, for Mark 10, 44 to 45, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's what we do at Urban Ventures. That's um, what gives me such joy. You know, a lot of people said, you should retire. Well, my, that pesky youth pastor, he's 85 and works harder than I do. I come to work, he's already there. Me and him, I see him three to four times a week. I work on a, I'm working on a project with him. We just started a school to help um, kids get into the construction trade because it's the quickest way out of poverty. It's the quickest way. Every kid that ain't going to college, every kid's not gonna make it in college. There's some kids out there with the mechanical abilities that need to be in the trades. When's the last time you've seen a black plumber? When's the last time a black electrician walked into your house? Because we don't have the trades in our community and we have poverty. So we want to get these kids out. Within five years, they could be making $100,000 a year. So that's, that's the newest school we just started two weeks ago. And uh, he's not going to slow down and I'm not going to slow down. But along the way, and I'll finish with this one little story, because becoming a Christian, sometimes you think everything is going to be all right. It's just going to be ice cream and pie every single day and with some whipped cream on Sunday. Church is for the saved. But God gave us one job. Now think about it. This is God. He gave us one job. And we ain't doing very well at it. He said, go out and make disciples. That's what he said. I'm just telling you, you find it in the Bible. That's what he said. He didn't say, hey, if you feel like it, or hey, if you're a preacher, he said, go out and make disciples. And he didn't tell you how to do it because everybody has to do it in their own way. We don't even mention Jesus most of the time in our everyday life. We're walking around co-workers, you know, we're friends with them. We don't say, hey, man, why don't you, 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 you love Jesus or Where's your spirituality? Anything. And they might tell you, hey, man, hey, hey, you're out of bounds. And you just, okay. But you made the attempt. So our kids learn about Jesus at a very young age. But anyways, on my fundraising path, um, one day I was asked to do the biggest speech for the biggest group. General Colin Powell was there, uh, the governor both mayors, uh, three senators, and I was in a room full of people, and that guy asked me to do the ask. And so around the corner, after he asked me, all the staff was there, I heard a couple of staff members talking. They didn't know I was there. 
Man, they asked John Turner to, to do the thing. Man, he a broke down criminal man. He's, he was a scumbag, man. Why are they asking him to do it? He's going to mess it all up. And it tore my heart apart. I felt like this tall. And I said, I'm going to mess this up. Now, mind you, there was um, a preacher that I didn't like. I hate to say it, but I didn't like him. He was too happy. His name was Joel Osteen. All this grinning and all them teeth in his mouth and stuff. I just, man, I guess you are happy. You know, you got a billion dollars and stuff flying around in jets and stuff. I'd be happy too. So that night or the night before the event, I was really depressed. And I was at home. Three o'clock in the morning, I woke up crying. And I was crying so hard that my stomach hurt. And I couldn't stop because the next morning I had to do this talk and they, they were right, I was gonna mess it up. So I turned on the TV so my wife couldn't hear me crying. And when I turned on the TV, this is what came on. Somebody told you you're not big enough, smart enough, bright enough, but you are a child of God and his mercy will be with you and you will do everything you need to do. That was Joel Osteen. <laughs> I started laughing because God sent him the person that I wouldn't listen to and he lifted me up. And the next day, I think I did one of my best talks. We raised about $10 million and stuff. So Jesus is always, my grandmother used to say, Jesus is on the main line. Call him up and tell him what you want. So that's what, you know, I'm telling you today. Jesus is on the main line, you know. Urban Ventures is just a small part of a, of a big problem that we have in the inner city. George Floyd tore our city up. He tore our city up, and that's sort of um, what I'll be talking about next week you know, the misery in the inner city, what's going on there? Because, you know, if you're not there, we're, we're like six blocks from where George Floyd was killed and stuff. So, I, you know, I would like to say thank you for having me here. So can we pray and uh, then have the choir come up? Where they at? The worship leaders or something? Heavenly Father, your babies are sitting in this room. We're all here. We look all different like you made us. You made us just how you wanted us. Different heights, colors, put us in different parts of the world, brought us all together in this room. Father, this is the greatest day in our lives because this is the one that we haven't seen the end of yet. Father, so we just look forward to everything that you have in store for us. This is a historic moment because never again Will each person in this room be sitting in the same exact place with the same exact people, hearing the same exact message? This will never happen again because this is part of history now. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for never being late on your child support. Father, we thank you for just having us here. Please bless the world. Please bless those that are not blessed as we are. Father, your mercy is so good that everybody should have a taste of it. And we ask that for every child and every human being in this world. So, Father Jesus, thank you for being the King of Kings. Thank you for loving us. And 
thank you for putting up with us even in our worst times. In your heavenly name, Father, amen.